Daniel said, my name is Timothy, one of the pastors here at Christ Central Church, and I have the awesome privilege to bring you guys God's Word. Uh, as is our tradition, uh, we're going to stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. We're in Psalm 34. As you turn to that passage, just uh, make a quick note here. I know we, it's a little warm in here. We had a little technical difficulty. Uh, this may be a little charismatic for some of you, but sometimes I feel like when some of that stuff happens, it's almost as if Satan is saying, I, got, I don't want you to hear what God is trying to bring to you, as if he's trying to distract us from what God has for us. So uh, I just want to throw that out there. There may be something for you today. Uh, Psalm 34, this is God's word. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and he delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let's pray. Father, we need to hear from you because you are the one true God and we are your people. And we come to you each week to be refreshed by you, by your presence, by your word. Speak into our hearts, speak into our lives. Remind us that you are here, that you are real, and that you are good. Father, as Daniel prayed, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You can be seated. I was in Atlanta uh, a few weeks ago for a football game, and it just so happened that at the same time as the football game, there was this thing called Dragon Con. Uh, most of you probably don't know what that is, uh, but Dragon Con, anyone know what that is? All right, a few of y'all, okay. Uh, Dragon Con is a convention for fans of fantasy, sci-fi, comic books, and like. Um, over 50,000 people 
gathered in Atlanta for this event. They do it every year. Um, and get this, almost all of them are in costume the whole weekend. So if you can just picture that, you really can't, but I wish you could. It, it is a sight to see uh, just 50,000 people dressed in every costume you've ever seen. Adults. This is an adult convention. Um, and I, yeah, it just was the football fans and the Dragon Con. It, it was awesome seeing the two of them hang out. But um, I wonder if you've ever, have you ever wondered why fantasy is so popular? Why is it that fantasy is so popular? 50,000 people come to this event every year. There are scores of books and movies and TV shows that are set in some sort of mystical, make-believe, far-off world. And in spite of the fact that most of us know that fantasy is not real, many of us love to watch it. We, we love to read it. Sometimes we even like to partake of it in some sort of strange way. That's kind of the Dragon Con experience. And I believe the reason for this, I believe the reason that fantasy is so popular is because inside of all of us, there is a longing to escape. Inside of all of us, there is a longing to escape. You see, this life is at times so hard, it is so lonely, it is so painful, that as a result, as a result we long to get out. We want to go somewhere safe, somewhere where we're accepted, somewhere where life doesn't hurt so bad. And there certainly are many ways to escape, right? You know, fantasy is just one of them. Some of us escape through work. Some of us escape through drugs and alcohol. Some of us escape through pornography, which is a very dangerous form of fantasy. Some of us, some of us even escape through serving and taking care of other people. Some of us escape through romance novels, TV, sports, school, the list goes on and on. But the scary truth is that the reason we so desperately long to escape is because we don't believe that there is really any hope for deliverance. Did you hear that? The reason we want to escape is because we don't believe there's any hope for real deliverance. You see, because that's what we ultimately want, isn't it? It's to be delivered from the pain, to be delivered from the suffering, from the loneliness, from the hurt. But since we doubt that deliverance is even possible, we take the easy way out by escaping, by ejecting out for just a little while so that maybe we can survive. And if I were to be so bold, I can... I can say pretty confidently that we don't believe in deliverance even by the way we just sang that song, Break Every Chain. Can I be so bold? I can just sit there and watch us and we hear these words and yet we don't really get it. I can just see that in this context. We don't believe that deliverance is possible. Amen? Anyone? Maybe, maybe we'll get there. Our text this morning speaks to those of us who long to be delivered. It's for those of us who are sick and tired of trying to escape and yet never really getting out. And there are two main points in our text this morning. The first is the reality of the Lord's deliverance. And the second is the life of the delivered. The reality of the Lord's deliverance and the life of the delivered. So let's, let's dive in here. 
the reality of the Lord's deliverance. Our text begins with David in a bit of a frenzy. He's overwhelmed with excitement and gratitude. I don't know if you've ever felt like this before, but when we do, we often, when we're overflowing with emotion, we, almost make, we often make these grandiose promises. We see this in, in uh, romance movies all the time. You know, two uh, lovers will be infatuated with each other, and then they'll begin to make these promises. I will never leave you. I will always be there for you. I will never hurt you, and so on and so forth. You know, empty promises. Clearly, if, if you've ever been in a relationship, you know those are promises that you can't actually keep. But it's when we're caught up in the moment, we, we actually believe that. There's so much emotion and passion there. And that's what we see David here. He is so excited. He makes this promise. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. He's promising this never-ending flow of praise and worship to his God. And he's so bold to then invite us into this impossible, perpetual state. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Just love his excitement. It's like a little kid, isn't it? He's just so raw and authentic, and it's beautiful. But what's got David so riled up? Why is he so excited? As I enter into that, I want to give you guys a little bit of context for Psalm 34. So there's a few times in the Psalms uh, where we get the context. If you guys may never have seen this in the Bible, but sometimes at the top of the Psalm, it'll tell you a little bit of when and why this, this story, the Psalm, was written. So the context for we have that here, and the context for David writing this psalm is a little of the backstory. Is David has been anointed king at a young age, so he's going to be the king of God's people. And yet there's a current king named Saul who is the presiding king. He's ruling, and so David's in this season of waiting. And what happens is Saul is getting intimidated and jealous of David. David is kind of getting too big. And so what Saul is doing is he's like, i got to get rid of this threat. So he's, he's decided, I'm going to kill David. So Saul is actually attempting to kill David. He, when we get to this point here, he's already tried twice to kill David. So David says, I'm out of here. i got to leave. And so he has decided he's going to flee to the land of the Philistines. Now, if you guys know a little of David's backstory, David's reputation came from the fact that he killed the Philistines' great warrior, Goliath. So when he's going into the land of the Philistines, he's not a very popular guy in this part of town. But he's that scared. He's that scared of his life. And so on his journey, he experiences two major trials. First trial is he's starving. He's about to starve to death. And so he goes and finds the priest and says, I need some food. And the priest provides him with some bread. Now, it's not just any bread. This is the bread of presence that the priest gives to David. This is the bread that's sitting on the altar always before God. And it's there to remind God's people of God's constant presence in their lives, his faithfulness to his people. Isn't that cool? He's fed with the bread of presence. Okay, and then the second trial that he has is, is he's going and he, he comes to Goliath's hometown. Okay, this was a mistake in travel plans. He comes to Goliath's hometown and they recognize him. And so what does David do? He, he pretends like he's a crazy man. He starts drooling all over himself and scratching at the wall and thankfully they buy it and they send this crazy man on his way. And so he gets out again And he ends up in this cave, and there his friends and family come, and they comfort him and encourage him. And it's most likely that David writes this psalm from this cave. So he's in this cave, hiding, but yet safe. Okay? So that's a lot of context, but why? Why are we given that context as the reader? Why not just write the psalm 
as it's normally done, and just to allow us to kind of anticipate and guess what the context might be? Well, the answer is because the context shines light upon as well as fascinates us about what's said in verses 1 through 3. So look again at the verses. You see, David is running for his life. He's experienced unbelievable, unbelievable trials, and yet he's been delivered over and over and over again. That's the person who's saying verses 1 through 3, the one who has been delivered by God over and over again. And yet at the same time, David's story fascinates us, doesn't it? Because God has anointed David to be king, and yet he keeps experiencing all these trials. If I'm David, I'm thinking, God, what's the, what's the big idea? You told me I'm going to be king, and you, I keep getting into all these situations where I'm about to die. Where are you at, God? But David continues to celebrate and magnify his God. Who in their right mind would celebrate God from that place? You know, there's something profound about someone who has suffered greatly, who resolves to praise God, isn't there? I love, I love Joni Erickson Tata. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this amazing woman. If you don't know her story, she was 18 years old, and uh, she was diving into the Chesapeake Bay, and she didn't judge the depth of the water, and she hit her head and broke her spine uh, and was paralyzed. And the thing that I love so much about Joni in the midst of this tragedy is that she's honest. First, she's honest. She'll never tell you that her life is easy. She's honest about her struggles, about her suffering, about her pain. And yet at the same time, she magnifies God. In her honesty, in her confession, she talks about how great God is. Listen to this quote of hers. One day we will stand amazed to see the top side of the tapestry that is our lives and how God beautifully embroidered each circumstance into a pattern for our good and for his glory. Isn't that awesome? David sees the top side of the tapestry, doesn't he? He writes this psalm while hiding in a cave, fearing for his life, and yet he continues to exalt the name of his God. It's awesome. I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't know what your cave looks like. I don't know what you're experiencing. I don't know if you're even questioning God's desire or ability to deliver you from the cave that you're in. You may not even believe that God even knows you're down here. But we listen to people like David and people like Joni. You know, David is speaking to those of us who are doubting. He says, verse 7, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. You can't read this verse and not think of a story that comes later in Israel's history. If you guys remember a story of Elisha and his servant. And so the, the, the Aramean army is coming to kill Elisha. And the servant is the first one who sees the army coming. And he runs to Elisha and he's in a panic. What do we do, Elisha? They're going to kill us. And this is what Elisha says to him. It's awesome. He says, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed to open up, ask God to open up the servant's eyes. And he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around them. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord encamps around us. 
I don't know what you're going through, but I beg you to listen to David, someone who's been there, and trust that God will deliver you. That's the promise of this text. And now before I move on, both David's story and this text demand that I make a sad but true statement in light of what I just said. You see, God never promises the absence of pain. I call this the anti-prosperity gospel. We hear a lot of the opposite, but David's story, this passage, and your life testifies the fact that God does not promise us the absence of pain. Amen? Listen to verse 18 and 19 further down. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. The Christian life is not pain-free, and anyone who tells you otherwise is a liar. Okay, God does not promise us the absence of pain, but what He does promise is His presence in the pain. Amen? He promises His presence in the pain. Listen to these, past, listen to these verses that we've already read. I sought the Lord, and He answered me. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. The Lord encamps because there's trouble. You don't encamp if there's nothing, there's no trouble, if there's no problem. But the good news with you is that he's in, he's in the trouble with you. He's in the valley with you. That's good news. And I realize that some of you would actually, if you could, would want to rip this page out of the Bible right now. Because what the text says is so different from what you are experiencing right now. There's this huge disconnect in what's being promised here and in your reality. And you're, you're sitting here saying, God's promising deliverance, but I don't see it. I don't know where it's at. And I need it. And I wish that I could give you a, three steps and you'd be delivered or some magic pill and it would come. But I want to give you what the text gives us here. David gives us three things. He says, remember, testify, and wait. This is what we do in the valley. Remember David at the beginning of this passage. He's in the cave, but he's remembering how God has delivered him in the past. He's not in the clear yet, but he's in, he's in the cave still, but he's remembering while in the cave God's posture, his character, his, his propensity to deliver. That's what God does. So in the cave, while he's still in danger, he's remembering who God is. And then he does something that the black church has been doing for a long time that we white people are not very good at. Amen? He testifies. Okay? He testifies of God's deliverance. Brothers and sisters, we have a responsibility to one another to testify of how good God's been. Because some of us need to hear that. They need to hear that right now. So we, we testify. We do it for us and we do it for them. How good God's been. And then lastly, he waits. He trusts God's character and he waits on his deliverance. David knows that God has promised to make him king. The promise is there and he's waiting on God to fulfill that promise. Do you, do you know what God has promised you? And are you waiting on God to fulfill that promise? I think that's convicting for all of us. So, so that's, what, that's what he gives us while we're in the valley, while we're, we're, we're struggling, we're suffering. He, he, 
He calls us to remember His faithfulness, to testify and to hear the testimony of others, and to wait on His deliverance, rather than escape out, to take the easy way out, to things that will never satisfy. Amen? Amen. Leads us, our second point, the way of deliverance. Starting in verse 8, David shifts gears pretty dramatically. He's going from talking about God's character to our journey. Uh, He's reminding us of God's commitment to deliver us, but then he begins to tell us, us the delivered ones, what does it look like to live out the delivered life? It's very important here that we understand the order. Look closely at verse 9. It says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. The message is for the saints. It's for those of us who have been delivered. Amen? We have to be so careful not to reverse the order and think that we must fear the Lord in order to become his saints. Okay? Hear me, brothers and sisters. Our deliverance is not contingent upon our obedience. I'm going to say that again. Our deliverance is not contingent upon our obedience. We don't have to be good enough for God to come to our rescue. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He initiates the deliverance. That's good news. And so the next 16 verses are David's instruction on how those of us who have been delivered are to live. And it begins with this famous verse, one of the most famous verses in all the Psalms. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's one of my favorite verses to pray over my kids, over your kids. I love it. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And what's interesting here is David's been talking for the first seven verses about how God has delivered him over and over again and how God promises to do the same for you. But then he follows with this instruction. It's kind of strange. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Why do that? You see, David understands that he can tell us He can tell us till we're blue in the face of God's deliverance, but unless we experience it, unless we taste it for ourselves, His words are empty. They're not going to do anything for us. Amen? Amen? He's telling us to experience. Stacy and I, my wife, went to the Biltmore a couple weeks ago, and uh, I had seen pictures before, and I had read about it, knew a little bit of the history. I'd even had people tell me how awesome it was, and we were honestly a little like, uh, maybe we're not going to go. Maybe it's not that cool. Do we want to spend a whole day at some, somebody's house? You know, it doesn't sound that cool. But we ended up deciding to go. And so we, we, we get in there, and, and we come. I'm walking. If you've been, I'm walking out of the woods from the parking lot, and you get up on the top of that ridge, and you look out over the lawn, and there is the house standing in all its glory. It's breathtaking. It is phenomenal. And I could sit here, and I could tell you all about it, But unless you actually go and see it, you have no idea what I'm talking about. It's just glorious, beautiful home. David is inviting us to experience God. Not just to hear about Him, not just to read about Him or think about Him, but to experience Him. You see, we so often forget that God's just not an idea. He is a being to be related with, to experience, to enjoy. So how do we do that? How do we taste God? David answers that in the next few verses. These three verbs that follow are very enlightening. He says, verse 8, take refuge. Verse 9, fear. Verse 10, seek. 
So how do you taste and see that he is good? By taking refuge in him, by fearing him, and by seeking him. See, for much of my life when I read this verse, I thought that David was talking about some sort of Holy Spirit experience, one of those moments where our hearts well up with gratitude, where we're overwhelmed by God's goodness. And those experiences are awesome. They're great. We, we celebrate them. We enjoy them. But that's not what he's talking about here. It's not what this verse is about. David is saying that the way to experience God is by seeking after him, by taking refuge in him, by fearing him. So what does that mean? Take refuge, seek, fear. Look at verse, verse 12. David pulls you a little bit closer. He, he pulls you to the edge of your seat. Here's my paraphrase of what he's saying there. He says, who doesn't desire a long and happy life? Okay, now he's got our attention. He's talking to us. You know, we, we all want that. And he said, here's the key. Verse 13. Keep your tongue away from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Brothers and sisters, this could be a massive paradigm shift for some of you. David is saying, you want to experience how good God is. You want to live a long and happy life. Here's the key. Obey. What? It, it's got to be more to it than that. Come on. No, he says, the key is obey. Now, some of you got your arrows drawn and pointed for this legalistic blasphemy that I just said from the pulpit. Bear with me. I promise you, this is what he says. One of my favorite professors in seminary used to talk about how we as Christians have a really perverted understanding of the commands of Scripture, of the law. Uh, he would talk about how uh, many of us grew up in this legalistic environment that told us that you know, we need to be really good in order to get God, uh, that we have to perform for God. And that's a lie from the pits of hell, and that needs to be stomped out of the church. Amen? That's not true. Okay, but the problem is many of us have swung the pendulum too far. We've thrown the baby out with the bathwater because, because of our experience, we come to believe that the only reason that there are commands in Scripture is to show us how sinful we are. Okay, that's true. The, the law does do that, but that's only half of the story. Two weeks ago, Daniel preached from Psalm 19, and there's this amazing verse in that passage that says, The law of the Lord is perfect reviving to the soul. There's, there's obviously way more than there than just revealing our sin. And my professor would talk about it this way. He said, envision, he wanted us to envision the time when he first gave his daughter an ice cream cone, her first ice cream cone. She'd never seen one before. Okay, so he, he gives it to her, and she just holds it there. She looks at it and stares at it, and it starts to melt and drip on her hand. And clearly, she's not enjoying the experience very much. And so my professor, because he loves his daughter, he then commands her, lick it. Lick the ice cream cone. And so she, you know, she licks it, and this huge smile comes over her face, and she's now experiencing this wonderful thing that we call ice cream. The law is God's command to us to live the good life. Do you see the connection there? It reveals to us from the God who created all things how we might enjoy Him and enjoy His creation. God's command to obey is really a loving Father's command to enjoy. He's saying, you want to live a long and happy life? Here's my guide for you. 
I created all of this for you, for you to enjoy it. This is your book. But the trouble is we begin to believe that there is joy outside of God's way, outside of the law. And we begin to think the crazy thought that maybe God is actually out to steal our joy, to rob us of the joy that we want to have. Wonderful example of this is God's command for us to wait until we're married to have sex. When you tell this to a teenager, they think that God is the ultimate killjoy. He's out to ruin their life. Why would he tell us something so horrible as to not have sex until we're married? And then you sit with a couple, and you hear one of the the spouse uh, saying through tear-filled eyes how much they wished and longed that they had not given themselves to anyone other than their spouse. And when you sit in that conversation, you begin to see, oh yeah, God, you did know. And that is your love and your care and your concern for us. That that command was not to hurt us, but to bless us so that we might experience more joy in this life. Again, obedience is not God's way, uh, it's not our way to get God, but to enjoy God, to enjoy what he's already given to us. Do we believe that? If we did, we would obey more, wouldn't we? If we really believe that God is for us and not against us. Our text ends now with seven verses that highlight the rewards that exist for those of us, the delivered ones, that walk out the delivered life. And he he also highlights the punishment for those who refuse to put their faith, faith and trust in God and be delivered. And I really think David lays out a pretty powerful case for those of you who are still on the fence about this whole Christianity thing. And he's also giving us who are Christians this wonderful reminder of what we've been given. And the the reality is God promises everything to those of us who are his. Everything. He promises so much to us. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. He watches over us. He listens to us. Verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. If you refuse to trust God, to fear Him, He has no choice but to turn His face against you. God is a just God who punishes the unrighteous. But there's hope in verse 22. Listen, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Condemned. You seek refuge when you're in grave danger, right? And our, our sin has put us in grave danger. Our disobedience to God has put us in grave danger, and our disobedience deserves punishment by God. And on the cross... On the cross, verse 22 is pointing to, Jesus bore that punishment on our behalf. We take refuge in the cross. We take refuge in its covering. We find safety in its ability to cover our sins. That's the good news of the gospel. And so in the cross, we find deliverance both in this life and in the life to come. That's the good news. Can you believe this passage is pointing all the way to eternity? Because God promises not just to meet us in our day-to-day lives, but for eternity. He promises to deliver us not from the day-to-day suffering, but from the eternal suffering that we face. That's the ultimate deliverance that He has promised for all of us. We rest in that. 
Do you long for deliverance? Are you sick and tired of trying to escape but to no avail? The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. God promises deliverance both in this life and in the life to come. Not to, so we walk in it. We walk in the deliverance he's given us, not to earn God's favor, but to experience him and his many blessings. Lick the ice cream cone. I promise you, you won't be disappointed. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I know there are many people in this room that are in a cave right now. Uh, They are experiencing great suffering, great trials, hurt, pain, and their flesh tells them, we need to get out of here. We need to escape. We need to go find some quick fix that's going to take this pain away. But your word says that we should cry out to you, that we should remember who you are, that you are a God who delivers, and that we should testify and listen to the testimony of your church, and we should wait on your deliverance in this life and in the life to come. Father, help us to wait, to wait on you, God, in the valley. And would we long for the day when your son Jesus returns and he he wipes away every tear and he makes all things new. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.